Recorded live. I'm Mara Chawastic. I'm Wayne Gladstone, and this is Sticks and Stones, the show where words can never hurt you. Hello, everyone. As you have all heard now, we have our regular uh, podcast co-host back with us. Wayne is here again this week. I'm sure most of you were tuning in to hear Jason, but sadly, uh, we, we've we've just replaced him with uh, with Wayne. The, the seasoned <laughs> professional. <laughs> but thank you wherever you are, Jason, for filling in last week. And thank all of you for joining us here the evening before Thanksgiving. We have a tremendously talented guest tonight. We have John Levenstein. He is at John Levenstein on Twitter, so that should be very easy to find. And he is an exceptionally talented writer working for shows such as Arrested Development and The Kroll Show and Silicon Valley currently. Uh, and thank you so much for being here, John. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm excited. I, I have no idea what's ahead of me here. I, none well, of you. Well, <laughs> with, that, with that as the, uh, as the introduction, um, Mara just uh, uh, named uh, some, some very uh, important and popular shows you've been associated with. But I wanted to go a little bit chronologically, and talk about something that has tremendous cult status that not many people uh, know about. And that's like when you first started your writing career, you got to work with uh, Mike Nesmith, right, in uh, Formerly of the Monkeys and the Elephant Parts, or was it for television parts at that point? Well, I've, I've hooked up with him before television parts, and I wrote for television parts. But he had just done Elephant Parts when I met him. What happened was my best friend and writing partner in college. We graduated from college. We came back to Los Angeles. We both grew up here. We put on a sketch show that I acted in and he directed and we both wrote. And we had these sketches then and we'd like hope that putting on the show would get something going and, and it did get us an agent, but not, it didn't get us work. But then like mm-hmm. within a year after that, I forget, I forget exactly. My friend's father was a lawyer and he wasn't Nesmith's lawyer, but he was like a lawyer who was, in the same firm maybe with Nesmith's lawyer or something, and we'd seen Elephant Parts, and there just there weren't that many people doing sketch comedy then, and we, we really liked right. it. We had sketches, and from the lawyer to the lawyer to Nesmith, we were able to get the sketches in his, in his hands. And, like, that was so much of it. You know, I, I, like, so many things would have been different if we just hadn't been able to do that, and that was totally through a connection. It wasn't, it wasn't my connection because there wasn't, there wasn't the Internet Nesmith was a recluse guy. He was living in Carmel at the time. He was doing things sort of his own way off the grid because he had liquid paper money from his mother. He pretty much created MTV and sold it to Time Warner. He had like a lot of cool things going on. Exactly. People don't realize this about Mike Nesmith, right? That he was the heir to the the liquid paper, right? The whiteout fortune. And then then Wright was basically a driving force of MTV that was sold off. And now... This elephant part in particular, incredibly had a tremendous wealth of talent associated with it, right? Yeah. So anyway, so we were, so I was like 23 at that point, and we got the sketches to him, and he hired us to do some sketches for him for like first for home video, but then that morphed into television parts. And at that point, I must have been just like 24 or 25, but it was a cool, a very cool time because the TV show Television Parts was an effort to do for stand-up comedy what uh, MTV had done for the music video. 
So we were going to clubs, we were seeing stand-up acts, and we were trying to figure out, like, which acts would translate well in the short films. And some, you know, some were more successful than, than others. And there was, music in the, there was music in the show, too. So we had Jerry Seinfeld in the show. We had Gary Shambling. Um, we had Whoopi Goldberg, Bob Goldthwaite. So, I mean, so many big comedians. And the, and the template from this show that Gary Shambling did ended up being his next show, uh, right. not Larry Sanders, the one before that. It's um, Gary Shambling's show, yeah. Yes. And then some right. other people did really uh, innovative things for this show and people who I end up becoming good friends with and I'm still good, friend, good friends with. And then also there were just some really bad matches. Like there were some really shitty, some really shitty things too, because in the effort to make things comedy videos because that was the whole right. mandate in some cases they end up being not comedy and not videos you know they, they, were, they were just the worst of both I, you know i remember i know i was really i was, i'd seen the show i saw i was i was i was, uh, I was a boy at the time but i remembered watching the show uh, and you know initially i was just watching it because you know it was mike oh it's the guy from the monkeys but uh and i was you know like 10 but um uh, and I guess I watched Monkeys on Saturday morning. But I digress. But I remember there were the Funny Boys who were also on that show, and I can't, I can never remember. And I don't know if you'll remember. They had a skit about how to speak Irish. It was a guy like learning how to speak Irish on the videotape. I've remembered the skit my whole life, but I could never really. And I found it on YouTube, but I'm not like sure where it's from. So I guess you don't remember. Anyway. Yes, yes, no, 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 definitely. So basically, what that was was Jim Bowley and Jonathan Schmuck, the Funny Boys, right? Uh, had that thing, the Irish Language Lab. Really, that was television parts? Yeah, yeah, that was a part of television parts. And, uh-huh. um, that's, and that, working with them on that show, they just come out here from New York, turned out to be one of the cornerstones of my career because after some diversions and there was a period of time in the 90s that I wasn't writing at all and I went to grad school to be a therapist, um, Jim Bowley, half of the Funny Boys, in the meantime had become a comedy writer. He wrote for Golden Girls. He was writing at Whit Thomas. And he's the one who got me back into writing. Oh wow! Uh, but but when I, I mean, met him, but when I met him, he was part of he was a part of that comedy team. And then the true. other interesting about television parts was that I was writing there, my partner was writing there, and an old comedy guy named Bill Martin, who'd also been a rich, an original member of the Stone Ponies and a songwriter. But then the other writer was Jack Handy, and that was very early in oh, his right. career too. So the first time Deep Thoughts was on TV was on television parts. It wasn't on Saturday Night, Night Live. That's right. That's right. And, you know, it's funny because that, that Funny Boys kit, like, it's just, it was a childhood memory and it, it stayed with me, like, forever. Uh, I've always remembered that skit. And when I think about that show now and that skit particularly, television parts were really ahead of its time because a lot of the skits were laying a template, I think, almost for, like, uh, Internet videos, Internet comedy. Yes, absolutely. The problem being that, and sometimes, that they were laughed uh, at NBC's demand, basically. And... Because they were laughed, sometimes they play a little like not not tight enough. Like you would cut them tighter if you knew you didn't have to laugh them. And Nesmith still bemoans them as always talking about just getting back in there and recutting them there and taking the laughs out huh. because it cuts it just bugs them that we had to do that. So that's the part that like doesn't exactly play um, on the internet. And every once in a while there'd be one on the internet without laughs. Like I don't even know how people got hold of those. And those are really weird because there is room for laughs. There just aren't laughs. <laughs> 
<laughs> so just like uh, it's like cutting into a uh, bombing that didn't even happen. Just to edit to make it. You know, I did. I gave I gave a talk at Google recently, and I was the only one who was mic'd, and the audience wasn't mic'd. So all my it's on YouTube. It sounds like all my jokes bomb because it's just silence, and I wait, and then I speak again. But you know, only my lapel mic doesn't pick up. The, oh, that's so weird. That's that can be yeah. That can be very that can be very deceptive. Um. Oh, and anyway, the, the one other television parts thing is that uh, Jim Valley I also wrote with on Arrested Development. So our, our careers as, as writers have intersected a lot. That's right. Oh, he had a, didn't he have a bit part in the uh, Little England uh, episode, right? He was a pub owner and everything was bread in that episode, right? You know, I what? don't remember that. Jimmy, Jonathan Schmack still acts. Jimmy does very little acting. Which is, I mix them up, which is the one who's the maitre d' in Ferris Bueller? Uh, one is Jonathan. Okay, what? Jonathan Schmack was the one who was the maitre d' in Ferris Bueller. Oh, okay. Um, he was he was in a bit part in Arrested Development in a Middle England episode. Oh, okay. I'd forgotten that because he also played in the pilot of Arrested Development, the captain of the ship that the Blues are on. All right, oh, wow. all right. There's a lot of inside stuff. All right. So, so thank you for for giving me. Wait, I I really wanted to dig into television parts, but. Uh, uh, we're going to move forward in your career, and I'm going to pass the torch to uh, to Mara to, to move us forward into the next aspect of your writing. Well, no, okay. I'm actually Maura, super curious. Wait, uh, because just one more thing. What you just, just said. To do net, no, no, go ahead. Just, just to do Nesmith just, uh, justice, because I wrapped up television parts. But then the other big thing Nesmith did in the 80s was he funded some movies with his own money, including Repo Man and Tape Heads. So oh, Nesmith yeah, is a guy. is a guy who I do not feel get, and he was a great songwriter. You know, so I feel like Nesmith is a guy who does not get enough credit. No, he doesn't. I mean, like, and like he was best friends with Zappa for a while too, right? I mean, you well, know, if you're in the monkey, best, his best friend was the guy who wrote uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Douglas Adams. Really? Oh. Douglas Adams. That was Nes- That was Nesmith's best friend. Wow. Yeah, he seems like a great guy. <laughs> yeah, very interesting guy. Anyway, more. I'm sorry. Well, no, I'm just really curious that, um, so then you completely left this whole world that you, you'd been doing this really interesting stuff in and decided you were going to be a therapist. And so this is completely like, this is off the rails, we, we hadn't discussed this at all, but I'm just curious what made you make that change and then go back in? Because I feel like most people kind of go the reverse. They they start out, they they kind of form a path that seems very practical and they're going to, you know, uh, study some things and, and do that and then suddenly realize that, no, no, what they really want to do is creative. So to start in creative and then just go, well, no, okay, I'm going to follow another path and then come back to being a creative person is kind of, a, that's, that's not a very typical path to, to follow. So what, uh, what, what drew you out and drew you back? Okay, well, for me, I feel like it's almost like a false thing for, for me, the idea of like creative or not creative. Because for me, I guess I feel like, and I came to feel like when I had a crisis in my late 20s, like um, my creativity, my writing was not coming from an authentic place. There was just something about it that was built on still the side of me as a kid that just basically wanted attention or was willing to accommodate or tell people what they wanted to hear. Um, and I just, I feel like I hadn't found, I'd had success early, but hadn't found my voice. So mm-hmm. I was just like a smart, funny person who who'd found, who was eager to please and had found success. But like, I just ran out of gas and uh, I didn't really have something to draw, to draw on at that point. So for me, 
like creative crisis and personal crisis were the same thing. And it got to the point that like my writing partner and I were still making some money together, but our visions were different. Like I feel like the main thing we agreed on was what was funny, but other things we didn't necessarily agree on. Um, And I just, and then I, you know, I also had some other things. I was like, I was in therapy for the first time in my life. I feel like when I was 28, I must've fallen in love six times. It was, it was just such a crazy part of my life when my personality was broken down. I didn't know like what I was going to put it back together with. So anyway, I stopped writing with that partner. I moved to New York. I started writing uh, by myself for the first time, but I wasn't making money yet. And I uh, was writing like kind of serious stuff. Then I came back to Los Angeles I was developing, I feel like, my voice as a writer a little bit more. I just wasn't making any money. And that's when I went to grad school to be a therapist. Hmm. Interesting. Go ahead, sorry. You went to school to be a therapist, and you you kind of went down that path, but then you're – Presumably, you're not currently taking patients for therapy, or maybe you are as well. <laughs> no, I'm not sure. no, but I feel like there was something in the, I don't know, I, I feel like there was something in the decision, just in retrospect, to say, I could do something else for money. It's more important as a writer to, like, try to write something I want to do or find my own voice than to make that my career. So I feel like there was something about that decision that helped me. There was something about those years I spent not making money as a writer and writing where I was figuring things out a little more. And again, just as I was figuring out who I was more, like I was saying, I, I was having a personal crisis in my late 20s. In my 30s, I was sort of putting it back together. So I was putting it back together as a writer then from just a, a more solid a more solid perspective, I think. But I hadn't made money. And you, kind of, you have to do something. So going to grad school was my choice. I, I was enjoying it. Like a year and a half in, I would say, um, was when Valerie got me back into writing. And I'd written like a Seinfeld spec maybe a year before with him saying that he could get me a job if I had a spec. And nothing had come of it in the short term, but then not that long after he was, he was able to get me in there. But um, by that point, I was, not, I was not eager to give up grad school. And I spent a year doing both before I, before I technically took a leave of absence from grad school. So like in 1995, my first year of sitcom writing, I was shooting shows Friday night, but I was going to grad school to be a therapist Saturday morning. So I feel like in my head, I felt like if I, st- if I dropped out of grad school, the writing work would go away again also. I feel like uh, I, was super, I was super... Oh, I know that. that. Yeah, I know that feeling. Yeah. Wait, so by the way, this doesn't count as a therapy session for me. I can't. <laughs> I still have to see my therapist this week. Because you didn't get the yeah, degree. No, I only, I only, I never finish. I can just, I can just break it down, not put it back together. So maybe you can put me in touch with my feelings, <laughs> but not tell me what to do with them thereafter. All right, that's not bad. That's not bad. So then, so then, what, what was your first uh, big steady writing gig after you finally said, okay, enough with the therapy. I'm all in with a writer, and then you felt like legit because you were earning consistently. I mean. When I was first starting as a sitcom writer, Whit, it was mainly shows that were at Wit Thomas. And as a production company, they were on their last leg. They'd done, because um, the television business was changing too, but they'd done right. Soap and Golden Girls and some other good shows. I hooked, Mitch Hurwitz was running the John Larroquette show, and I worked on that for like the last year and a half of that show. 
Right. He came up through with Susan Thomas, right? That was sort of his... I think I I spoke... He was like Susan Harris's, like, gopher at one point when he was a young kid, wasn't he? That's impossible. I mean, he had strong relationships with Susan and with Paul and with with Tony, and he was there, yeah, from when he was a kid. Even though Mitch is a little younger than me, he'd been at with Thomas for a while. And so as soon as I was there, he tried to get me over to the John Marquette show because he'd heard about me from Jim Valley. And uh, I was then with Mitch for a while for, for a couple of years on that show, but there wasn't, and I was with Thomas for a few years and they treated me great, but like the independent, the big independent production company, like with Thomas was, was going away at that same time. And also, and, and also at the same time, the TV business was just a goldmine for comedy writers for like a brief period of time there. So after Wit Thomas, I spent a number of years on those studio deals like they were doing at the time, which was a lot of money that didn't usually amount to anything, but that made up for me for like the years that I hadn't worked at all. Wait, so what, I, I, you, I'm sure this is just my own ignorance, but what kind of shows are you talking about now that made up? It's, it's, but I'm talking about not shows. I'm talking about like, there was a period of time like once you ha- if you were a writer who hadn't done that much, and it makes young writers now mad, rightfully so. Because oh, I'm sure it's changed. But like you could be a writer with like three or four years experience working on shows that you hadn't created, and if it was right. perceived that you'd done a good job, like Disney or Sony or Brillstein Gray or one of the studios at the time that was doing it would give you a two-year development deal. Which, uh, more, which was more money than you would make for working on a show, these studio deals. You didn't even necessarily have to work on that studio's other shows. They right. expected you to write a pilot, which usually wouldn't become a show. It was, right. a, it was a crazy business model that writers benefited right. from for like a four- or five-year period right. that has gone away. So like now when they make those deals spreaders, it's because they're either huge names or because they know what show they're putting them on. Exactly. So anyway, so... So there were some years of working on sitcoms, some years of doing like not that much as I was getting paid on those sorts of deals. And then I wound my way back to Mitch Hurwitz with Arrested Development, and then that's really what starts the part of my career where I was doing work that I can stand behind, and that was maybe like 2003. But that means like right. between 1995 and 2003, I worked on a lot of shows that I would say I couldn't completely stand behind, like other people's shows that were multi-camera comedies on networks where I would be anything from like a story editor to a co-producer or a consultant or something, but not great shows, but all people like smart, funny people making their best efforts. Understood. And we have, a, obviously we're going to talk about Arrested Development uh, a bunch, but, uh, but I think time in the podcast where we pay, play the first of our two games uh, if you'll indulge me, I, I usually introduce this, introduce this game with an old-timey 1940s radio voice. Uh, it's time to play Stick Stone Starry. All right, go ahead, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> not bad, not bad. Um, yeah, so I, I kind of hate to interrupt uh, this because it's, it's incredibly fascinating. Uh, everything that, that you're talking about is, is really interesting to me, and I just kind of want to listen. But... We have to play this game. We have a game to play. We have a game to play. This is, you know, I mean, people expect it, and I don't want to disappoint people. That would make me feel bad. So, Stick Stone or Story is a game where I am going to read 
three different tales. They are all connected by a theme. And it will be up to you, once you've heard them all, to determine which one is stick. That would be me. I'm Mara Chua Stick. Which one is stone. That would be about Wayne, Wayne Gladstone. And which one is about some random third person uh, who is usually famous, um, but some any person it may be in the world. Um, and then for extra credit, if you'd like to guess who that random person might be, you, okay. you can do that as well. All right. Are people, uh, are people good at this usually? You know, it is really Lucky hit or miss. Great. <laughs> we, I, I, I think about like, 40% of one. 40%, 30%. Yeah, I was going to put it kind of low. Kind of low. People tend to actually not be great at it, I think is probably okay. the right way to say it. So so you, you have no, no shame in getting it completely wrong, like so many before you. It's okay. Right. Um, <laughs> just go with your gut, though. I mean, you know, you study to be a therapist. I feel like you have great insight into the human condition. So you, you, might, uh, you might be able to, to nail this. So here we go. The, the three tales. Uh, the first. This person was at a bar with a foreign ambassador who decided to teach this person how to succeed in politics. The ambassador kept telling the person that they just need to be able to argue points while drunk and continually lined up tequila shot after tequila shot and insisted that they do tequila shots and debate points. Uh, This person did so and spoke rather eloquently and then walked out of the bar having successfully carried on the conversation only to throw up publicly in the street. That is story one. Oh, by the way, there's a theme here, John. These are all going to be public vomiting stories. We like to keep it Okay. So, I'm completely random. It's like the next story. It's like, this person was buying a dress. It's a, it was, it's a theme today is public vomiting. So yeah, I'm, I'm, pretty, with, I'm pretty confident. I'm pretty confident on number one. All okay. right. Okay. All right. right. Well, well, not yet 21. This person went out to a bar and was allowed in, only to find that they sat down next to some rather famous musicians. And wanting to keep the pace, this person spent the entire night drinking with the musicians who were buying the person drinks. Uh, And finally, as the sun was coming up, this person left the bar, being driven home by a friend, uh, but realized on the way home that uh, that this person had had far too much and forced the friend to pull over so that they could throw up. However, they were on a highway, and in doing so, they blocked some traffic while this person had to get out of the car and throw up at 20 years <laughs> age. That is, that is the second. And the third tale. One night at the height of this person's tolerance, they drank eight tequila shots while watching Planet of the Apes marathon and went to bed feeling completely sober. The next morning, this person woke up promptly at 8 a.m. to deliver mail for the English department. At 9, while trying to sort the mail, this person got instantly drunk and went home sick. While walking home and nearly home, this person suddenly felt violently ill while on a bridge crossing a gorge. Fearing falling into the gorge while vomiting and having everyone assume that this person had killed themselves, uh, this person bravely walked an additional 10 steps to get off of the bridge uh, before publicly vomiting. Those are your three stories, and it is now up to you to decide which is stick, which is stone, and which is story. 
And we have the ambassador drinking with ambassador, drinking with musician, drinking with Planet of the Apes marathon. Would you like to guess? All right. Number one, stick. Okay. Ambassador was more That's your guess. Okay, we'll tell you at the end. Okay. Um, two and three are a little tricky. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's deceptive here? I'm conflicted on this. Two is kind of a boring story, which would make <laughs> it, maybe maybe it's a famous person because why else tell that story? Oh, that's but then, smart. Was, but then there was something about three and the gorge that made me think. I don't know. I just thought I don't know why Nabokov would be watching a Planet of the Apes marathon. Maybe he was dead <laughs> and then throwing up on a gorge. Um, well, okay, no, I'm going to flip it. Here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to say, two, the boring story is the celebrity, three, Stone. Nailed it! You got three for three. That is well done. You should obviously give up comedy writing, go straight back into therapy. You, you understand humanity Far better wait, wait, than wait, at least on. the majority of our, uh, wait, our. You know, aside from the perfect score, here's what's so great about what just happened. And you know, John, I don't care if anyone else who's been on the show is listening. That was that was the the, the greatest uh, play uh, yet on the show for Stick Stone Story. Because yes, you heard Gorge, and it was Cornell. That's where I was, and the story was me, and you guessed correctly. But you know, Nabokov taught at Cornell, wrote Lolita while in Ithaca. So even referencing that, maybe it's not when maybe it's Nabokov, when it actually could have been conceivably, because he lived and probably crossed that bridge, amazing. Three out of three, congratulations. <laughs> well, thank you, but, but that, now, that's why I was conflicted. And then number two, the boring story. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's a terrible story, Mark. <laughs> okay, guys, you know what? I don't have access to everyone's vomiting story in the world other than what Google tells me. This is the best I could do. But you <laughs> traffic. But he was drinking with a musician. Whatever. Uh, anyway, you have the opportunity to guess who that number two was. Now, that, that is extra credit. Uh, no one has ever gotten it right uh, because it okay. is billions of people in the world. Can you tell me the salient facts of number two really quickly again? Sure. This person was 20 years of age, not yet 21, went to a bar, uh, drank with musicians. In fact, I'll tell you, because I left this out so as not to confuse the timeline too much, uh, was drinking with Lily Allen, if that is helpful in any way. Uh, I don't know why it would be. Yeah. Okay. Um, so probably not Brad Dereef, which I guess every week. Okay. <laughs> that is what you guess every week. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, and got very drunk and was driven home and threw up uh, on the highway. And, in fact, I think it was the 101. Uh, so that should tell it you. It blocked traffic, but, you don't say. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But there's no – okay, so I'll say, uh, I'll say Lindsay Lohan. That's an excellent guess. That's an excellent Brad guess. Brad <laughs> It was Harry Styles of One Direction. Oh, uh, Harry Styles of One Direction. But truly, but, you know, truly that is sad if that's his best story, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's the best one Google has allowed me, and there were photos of it, too. I could have posted photos uh, because they were, they were right on top of him. But when you Google 
celebrities vomiting. You mostly get celebrities vomiting on stage, and I just felt that that would really get away far too quickly. Yeah. Oh, that's true. That is true. We're uh, in the middle of the performance vomiting. So this is the best uh, best I could do. But let's move on to Arrested Development, um, which uh, which um, you know it's funny because a huge obviously who is a huge Arrested Development fan, and uh, before you got on the show. I did something very stupid. I said, oh, well, let me, let me look up John on IMDb to see which specific Arrested Development episodes uh, he wrote. And then I, I looked up uh, that you got specific credit for, and I go, oh, well, oh, I like that one, I like that one, I like that one, I like that one. And then I realized this was the stupidest exercise ever because I like every episode of Arrested Development. So, of course, I liked uh, uh, all the ones that, that you wrote as well. Uh, Good Grief stands out, but they, you know, Marta Complex, but they, I don't have an episode that, I mean, that's why it's considered, you know, arguably one of the greatest sitcoms of all time. There really well, aren't well, here, bad but episodes. But here's, why it's, but here's more why, why it's an exercise, is that pretty much everything was group written on that show, at least like for the first two years that I was there. Um, you know, a draft would go out, but ultimately we'd be over the weekend with a few of us going through that thing line, line by line, or, you know, sometimes we would start by scratch. The reason that there's all those shared credits in year one and two is just that Mitch would rotate them. It wouldn't be based on those people actually right. doing it. So like well, that was a script, thing, yeah. So yeah. So like a script credit that I shared with Mitch, I mean, Jim Bowley and Richie Rosenstock were also there. There was no real rhyme or reason to it. He would just, he would just rotate through because by year two, I was only there part-time, Good Grief was the only script I actually wrote a draft of. Right. Right. Um, well, let me ask you this. We have so many questions. I know more must have questions, too, on this. But uh, uh, I actually got to, to, to speak to Mitch Hurwitz a, a couple of times just because there was a Netflix thing we were having a conversation about last year that didn't happen. But um, I got to actually ask him this question, but let me ask you. What if any, to your mind, was the influence of the show uh, Soap, speaking of, uh, you know, uh, Susan Harris before and and Younger Wit, on Arrested Development? Or to your mind, was that not a template in your head at all when you were working on Arrested Development? I mean, I was, you know, I was around starting with the pilot or, or, or before the pilot, and I never heard I never heard much about soap. But when I was here about soap, it would be because someone else would say something about soap to Mitch, and hmm. and whatever that person say said, like Mitch would acknowledge it if if, if there were similarities of, of some sort, he he would acknowledge it. But I don't believe that any of that was really active. I, I don't believe that was really active for him creatively. I mean, I think that his things were much more. The dramas he was watching at the time, like The Sopranos or The Godfather or things like that, just kind of dark family things that he was watching. Right. And then for style at the time, uh, he was knocked a little bit for, for the Royal Tenenbaums um, as far as like the look of the look and tone of the, of the thing. But um, I just don't think Soap was active with him, but I know I, I was there when he would hear about it sometimes. Right. Well, you know, the thing is, one thing, the one, I mean, I did actually write something on the internet where I did a side-by-side list of, of things the shows had in common. Not that, I mean, I love Soap and I love Arrested Development. In fact, I, I like Arrested Development more. It's not a cheap shot. But the one thing I guess that 
the one thing that's similar that I then think a lot of things spring from is that it's, it's rare, they do a little less these days, that you have a show about, it's not a common to have a sitcom about family, but it's more rare to have a sitcom about family that is largely adult children. That is more like The Godfather or dramas you sing. And when you have adult children, you, you have totally different storylines that can go anywhere as opposed to like, well, Jimmy has a test this week and no one will right, write right. to the prom. So, um, all right. All right, well, there you go. Um, what's, interesting, what's interesting about that, though, is that like, it's a show about adult children, but the way that Mitch saw the show, just, just in his own eyes, and like, he obviously brought a lot of himself to each character, is he saw himself as George Michael. So he saw himself right. as the kid, as, as Michael Sarah, and that's really what, what he wrote for me. Michael Sarah was my favorite character to write for. So it's interesting in a show that was like all about the adults, that that one kid was so important. Right, as opposed mm-hmm. to the one kid on soap was probably the least important. Billy. Yeah, who but, uh, I mean, kids yeah, on soap. Yeah, Billy. But then again, how many shows have, have characters that are into ventriloquism? I mean, that's weird. That's all the shows. Right, <laughs> right. No, that's shows. true. That's true. And there were, there were things that would come up. And, and it's possible that Mitch was inspired by some of those things. Uh, uh, like, you know, he wasn't aware of that one. I, I actually said that to him while I was on the phone with him. And he was like, oh, damn, yeah, right. <laughs> They just pop in. It's not. It doesn't seem deliberate. But uh, yeah, Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> right. I could well, talk about. I, I'm just trying to. I'm just trying to guard myself because I could just blabber about breast development all day. So I'm just forcing myself. Wayne uh, can just blabber about a lot of things all that's day. The first, He's a that's tremendous the blabber. Well, that's the first show I've worked on that I have the experience. Also, that like I'll be in. I'll be in writers' room since then. And, like, someone will pitch something and someone else will call it out as something that Arrested Development did. And, like, I, I don't remember everything at this point because I was, in, I was in the bubble, you know, I was in the submarine working on each one. But, like, as soon as you do one, you have another one to do. So it's like, it's like mm-hmm. cramming for a test. Right. It's not, the kind of, it's not the kind of memory that completely lands when you're working on it. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. That absolutely makes sense. I... Um, I don't want to, I mean, we, we could talk about Arrest Development for some time, but we, you know, we send out questions to our guests before they come on. And, um, and one of the things we like to ask, because we are uh, grumpy and curmudgeonly generally, or at least I am, I, and I, I think Wayne probably is as well in a lot of ways. I'm at the light. Um, I'm at the light. <laughs> we like to talk about things that are happening that, um, that annoy and, and piss off individuals uh, in their field. And um, I think we were both delighted because you listed several things. <laughs> that, uh, right, that, three answers. Yeah, which was wonderful because we would love to just talk about things that uh, that make us angry. So I just kind of wanted to, to touch on whichever of those was most interesting to you to discuss. Um, we, we asked what makes you most angry in your field, and uh, you talked about improvising, um, and behind-the-scenes showbiz, and received wisdom, and so uh, I'd just love to hear more about any of those that you would prefer to talk about. Okay, and now I would I would say also, like, just the word angry. I don't know if they make me. I would say they don't make me angry. They're just things I don't like. But then there right. are in my life a lot of times that I don't like things, and people think I'm angry when I don't <laughs> think I'm angry. So so maybe you know so maybe I'm angry. 
but I'll touch, I want to touch quickly on behind the scenes showbiz and then I'll go to improvisation where I have more to say. The problem with, with my not watching shows that are behind the scenes show business is at this point, it's a self-made prison where I miss a lot of good shows. And yet I'm <laughs> sticking with this resolution I made because I just got so fed up somewhere along the way with like writers writing about writers and actors and directors. Like it's the most interesting thing in the world. It just became such an echo chamber for me. And even though some of my favorite shows ever, like Larry Sanders and even as recently as the comeback were behind the scenes show business, I just decided enough of that. Since I made that decision, like one show after another comes out that I am curious about, but I, but I won't watch them. <laughs> so, it's, so, so, so I'm really in between on, the, on that one right now. But I do feel like there are too many shows there behind the scenes show business, and it's just a lazy, it's just a lazy choice to me. Um, right. The thing about improvisation is that, and this has been a slowly evolving theory of mine, and the problem is the biggest piece of it, which I don't have, is anything about how improvisation is actually taught because I've never taken an improv class I just know sort of like what I see around town. So I'm making, I'm making certain assumptions. But mm-hmm. my feeling, and have either of you guys done improv classes ever? I have. Uh, very a little. I, I really, I really, and as far as I feel, like the best 2% of improv is like the greatest thing on the face of the earth. And I kind of have tremendous disdain for the other 98% of it. That's where I'm coming from. Because to me, like bad improv or mediocre improv, it's like here are tricks that always get laughs. Whereas, like, the people who are really in the moment inspired, well, they're in rarefied air and they're geniuses. But it's mostly bad. That's how I kind of feel about improv. Well, and I'm, I'm going to make a dis- – my distinction is going to be between – I agree with you, but also I'm, I'm going to make a distinction in a second between stage improv and, um, and camera improv. Because my feeling with state was stage improv. And I see a lot of UCB shows in L.A. and okay. – I've, I've, seen some, I've seen some great shows. Like a lot of my favorite improvisers are there. And I feel like whatever sorts of devices they use to keep improvs going when they're improvisers I really like, who I think are really funny people on stage, I'm okay, I'm okay with it because I feel like the point of like some of these improv rules is so an improv doesn't break down on stage, you know? Correct. So right. If that's what they've got to do to keep themselves aloft and like, I've got to wade through some stuff that might not be my favorite to get to the next funny bit. Like I see a lot of inspired bits on, on stage. I feel like right. I have two, I have two, two prongs have come from that. I think that this is a theory because I haven't traveled this myself, but which is where I have a problem. One is when actors who are improvising for camera try to use the same rules that they use on stage. So they'll try to develop games in a scene for camera, whereas to me, like, if the point of a game, which in my mind it is, and I could be told otherwise, is just so an improv doesn't break down on stage, you don't need it on camera. You can always yell cut. A director can always yell out a suggestion. It just doesn't matter. You can always redo things. People don't have to be on the same page. So I just feel like you can you can throw that out and just do trial and error and see what and see what happens. And my favorite camera improvisers like Fred Armisen, that's all they do. They like he's never taken a class, he's just in the moment. It's what you're saying. I don't know if it would work on stage what Fred does. You know, I feel like what Fred does as an improviser, he's on camera. That that's that's a big part. Right. But to me that's my favorite thing. Just that he's completely spontaneous with no rules on camera. And I feel like some stage improvisers have a hard time putting aside 
some of the devices that make their improvs work on stage. And then the other prong is I feel like they mu- someone must be teaching improv writing as if it were improvised also because when I was reading sketches like writing samples for Kroll Show, I would write so many game I would read so many game based written sketches. And again, like I don't know why a written sketch has to have a strong game that keeps it alive because it is alive. It's a it's a script. You can do whatever you want. That's right. That's a, that's a, really yeah. interesting. I had then people are writing that out. It seems oh, to me think, more that they're sorry, just yeah. they're just uh they've been taught one thing and they just don't actually know how to adapt it because I can't imagine they're actually being taught to write that. Right. And then, and yeah, and then don't even try, you know, but it is odd to read a sketch that could have been, that could have been improvised. I just feel like there's so many more avenues you can go down. Right. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. That is interesting. You know, you speak of, you talk about how on camera you can just yell cut and redo and try something new. That certainly uh, that certainly comes through. Uh, just to go back for a second with Arrested Development, because uh, when you watch Arrested Development like a moron, like over and over again a million times, like maybe I have, uh, you notice that it's not really edited for continuity. There, there. It, it seems like when making editing decisions, what is the timed best for the laugh, for the biggest laugh, is what got final final take in the edit because. I won't call them continuity errors, but there are like little things where if you watch it obsessively, you're like, oh, well, it's funnier. They must have cut it for that take, the funnier take, the better bit. Well, here's, here's what I would say, though, because uh, Arrested Development had very little improv, um, and Mitch is like very controlling in certain ways. There would, be cut, there would be first cuts of that thing where he would basically cut it to the sound edit he heard in his mind. He just had a lot he wanted to fit in. And so to <laughs> me where there were continuity errors, it was because it was somehow off the beat for him. And he needed, right, to, hear right, right. He, he needed to hear things in a way that jumped the line and would create these right. little continuity errors, but he didn't care. And anyway, like his first cut listings would have so many of Mitch's voice because he'd have to put a lot of shots on people's backs to get the right. rhythm he wanted. And he would, have exactly. them come in and loop, he would come in and have them loop it later. So it wasn't like it was radio, but it was like just that audio part of it was important enough to Mitch that he would force some of those little continuity things. Like they don't That's have right. to be things I I noticed, but that would be my theory from what you said. No, you're right. You're right. The, the, that's a much more accurate way to say it. it. Wasn't so much to make room for improv, but right, the beats and the meter are are impeccable. And sometimes, right, you would get this from the back cut, but it, but if you were just listening like radio, impeccable. You know, boom, boom, yeah, boom, yeah. boom, boom. Right, right. Yeah, well, that's, that's a, okay, very more specific. Well, you know what we're up to now, uh, John? Uh, we, we can talk about uh, – wait, I, we have to, I have to ask you this. We have one more game coming up. But the other okay. thing you put down about things that upset you or, sorry, didn't upset you, but you didn't prefer what people might mistakenly think you're upset about is, quote, received wisdom as applied to sitcom stories. Do you mean like stories where a character learns something? Is that what you're referring to there? Oh, well, I mean, well, it's just – they have just the feeling and shape that they have, and, and these things can go in. Um, they can be a style. They, things can go in and out of fashion. But to me, what can happen will be, and I've seen it happen maybe like five times, is that there'll be a popular show like Friends that's a breakout show, okay? So like mm-hmm. a lot of writers on that show then, at least this is, this is the way it works then, 
whether they were great at it or not, would end up with shows of their own at some point that they're in control of. Or at least they become powerful voices at other shows as the writers from Friends fan out, right? Well, they they had a way of breaking stories at Friends and involved, like, writing each story on the board in a different color and things had to come together in a certain way for it to be a friend story and, like, each character has his or her own story. And then they would, like, spread out over town. And these weren't original. No one's, They're not original thinkers. So they would, like, in the rooms all over town, like, try to impose that way of doing it. And a lot of times it's based on an original spark, which, like, in the case of Friends, they had a great cast. And... Right was their way of breaking stories special? Like, even if you bought that friends' stories were special, which I don't, was their process special? No. How could it have been? So why were so many people in town doing, doing, that, doing that process, you know? And right. anyway, things go in as fashion in terms of what people think a story is. But when that happens, people try to enforce that on stories all over town. And then there's processes that go along with that, that they try to enforce also. And I'm always uh, trying to rebel against that because again, to me, like with improv, if you're being honest and you're looking for a fresh story in the end on some level, it's trial and error, you know, and, and, right. and anything else you're just pretending. Okay. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for your, uh, non-angry distaste for talking the business. But now we're up to the second game. We'll see if you... I think only two guests have ever gotten both uh, games correct. I think Lucky Yates, the voice actor from Archer, was one. I forget who the other one is. Mara, do you know? I have absolutely no idea. I don't, this, these are not things I hold on to, frankly. I, okay. I, well, yeah. They, for some, some might think these details are unimportant. But <laughs> I feel like I'm a winner. the world in winners and losers. It makes me well, feel, I feel like I'm a winner know? already, I, uh... though. <laughs> John, you'll, at the very least, you'll be in rarefied air if you do this. You're already in rarefied air because you had the best performance on a stick stone story ever. This game is called Highbrow, Lowbrow. Because uh, what I like, uh, it's my game, and what I like is in art is really astute literary references with a dick joke just mixed in. And, and of course, you know, a lot of things you've written for, actually, certainly Arrested Development being one, has that breadth of comedy from slapstick to very astute references. So here's how we play the game. Two highbrow questions, two lowbrow questions. You only have to get three right. So you know, too high, too low, it's your oh, choice. Okay. The first one, the first one in each category is the easier one. The second one in each category is the harder one. And <laughs> like the other show, we build it around a theme. So because you've written for shows with the word show in it, like the John Larroquette show and the Gina Davis show and the Kroll show, these answers all have the word show in them. Now, okay. to step back. Very sometimes in art, it's hard to draw a, a quick line between what's lowbrow and highbrow, but we do our best. I kind of, Mar and I picked which categories these things belonged in. So go ahead. Your first choice, highbrow or lowbrow? Oh, man. All right, let's start highbrow. Highbrow. Name the 1971 Robert Altman movie in which Sybil Shepherd made her film debut. Okay. It was a Peter Bogdanovich movie, and it was the last picture show. Wait, did I get that wrong? Was it not a Robert Altman? You're right. It's not a, it was not a Robert Altman movie. 
You're right, because she was with Peter Bogdanovich. Oh, <laughs> oh wow. Boy. Wow. Yeah, See, you you cor- no one's corrected me on the show yet, so that's fantastic. All right. <laughs> what am I thinking? Of? Uh, anyway. Um, okay. You're one for one. You only have to get two more, two right of the next three, highbrow or lowbrow. Oh, and the second one is harder. Uh, all right, lowbrow. Correct. Look, you're, you'd be surprised how few guests grasp that concept, that, that maybe they want to get the easier ones out of uh, I feel like he's okay. already won all of the points. He's I know. You, he understood I, the I rules. Have, I have a feeling it's, it's, yeah. you, you should have no problem with this one unless I've screwed up the question and it's actually Peter Bogdanovich. But uh, Lowbrow, Mel Brooks, Neil Simon, and Woody Allen all wrote for this comedy show starring Sid Caesar. Your show of shows. Yeah, Correct. I don't know if that one's lowbrow. That's that's tricky. I know that, that was tricky. That it one was. that I, one went back and forth between categories. It did. That's why that's why I gave the the announcement at the beginning. It's really hard to to get this uh, to get this right. Director, you know, I did have to look that up. Peter Bogdanovich. I don't know why I said Robert Altman. Uh, I was thinking. Something. All right, let's go. Let's go higher. Oh, you know what? Wait, 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 wait. Didn't I? I think I know why I got confused. Just to save face, because I'm very embarrassed right now. Wasn't there a sequel to the last picture show? I think there was called Texasville. Yeah, wait, who directed Texasville? There was. There was. Peter Bogdanovich. Okay, I've got no excuse. Okay, so you're two for two. You only have to get. I'll bet. I can think of that. There must be a movie you're confusing with. I'll give that some thought. Uh, It's okay. I'm embarrassed enough as it is. Uh, Okay, so you. This is. I really. I really like your odds on this, John. Uh, Would you like the harder and of the lowbrow or the harder of the highbrow? Yeah, we're going to do harder of, well, I said, okay, yeah, harder of highbrow. Okay. I think this is probably the hardest of the four questions, but I think you'll get this right, too. Name the, and this is why I looked up, so the director's not wrong. Name the 1952 Cecil B. DeMille movie about the circus. The greatest show on earth. Correct. Wow. You didn't even need to use all four of his guesses. You want want to do the fourth one? Just, just. You've already won. On 30 Rock, name the show that Tina Fey's character Liz Lemon was head writer for. The girly show? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Look at that. What, four for four? This is perfect. You know, I I make fun of Fallon for it, but I do love games. (laughs) Games are very fun. There's no denying it. Everybody does, right? I mean, that's like the first way we... We learn as children. And by the way, I'm, I should announce that the other person to uh, win both was Tim Talbot, the writer. Uh, <laughs> oh, he, did we uh, forget Tim? Yeah, he, he reminded me. asterisks or something by his win? I'm not sure. He definitely reminded me, though, that he, he also won both oh, games. Oh, sorry, so Tim. Tim Talbot, the, the, the writer of TV the comedy writers. Are, uh, Prison Experiment and South Park and Chicago Fire. He uh, he also did well, but, uh, but John, no, more the, the reason for that John reigned supreme. He got four. Out of four. In the first quiz, I have one thing for more. In that first quiz, the reason, by the way, that I pictured you with the ambassador was yes. it was so it was so funny. The like the, it, the way it was put up, even though you were saying he was talking to the person, it just sounded like such classic mansplaining from an ambassador. <laughs> so it just yeah. seemed it just seemed like it was to a woman to be like as gross as possible. You know, that's, that's absolutely that's, true, that's and it was before well. I was aware of the word mansplain or any of that concept, but... Exactly. Yes, And I absolutely. don't love the word, but it does apply sometimes. 
Oh yeah. no, it, it it definitely it definitely does. It's a, it's I love the term because I think it's it's absolutely hilarious. Um, I once mansplained incorrectly to Mara what the word meant. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. <laughs> yeah, it, it was a wonderful conversation wherein when we had just first heard the term and was debating it, Wayne was telling me what it meant. And I, was, I kept saying, are you sure? I, I don't know. I, I don't think that's what it means. And he kept insisting... And finally, I was like, because I looked it up, and it means this. And did you look it up? No, he hadn't looked it up at all. Why would I look it up for having a penis? Yeah. It was perfect. Yeah, what, 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 the penis explains everything. Exactly. <laughs> all right. Wow. All right. You <laughs> put that on a graduate thesis. Just, you know, my dick said so. That's, yeah. that's the way I, these things I go. I penis on a lot of things. So um, let's move forward. Um, what else do we got here? We got, we got, well, we're going to play. Go ahead, Tamar. Well, I just wanted to say, because, um, you know, we were talking a lot before here about um, about improvising, and then you had also mentioned um, and Fred Armisen, and uh, and you've been doing some acting as well. You, you've been doing some voice acting on Portlandia with the, uh, the, the rats, I believe, uh, which is hilarious. I didn't yes. even realize that was, that was the case. That was so my, that, that was like my gateway back into acting. Like I, I acted in college when we graduated. We came out here and put on this show. But at the time, I, I was 22, and I don't remember if it was ever as active as, as saying I choose writing over acting. But just I was in no condition to go out for auditions and have people judge me based on things like my physical appearance at that point in my life. I was just way too insecure. And so I just decided I, I was not going to do it. And that decision carried forward for 30 years. Right. And so it wasn't really until uh, Jonathan Kreisel, my friend who also directed Kroll Show, had me start voicing that rat on Portlandia that it opened the door for me again that I could do some acting. And then I was very safe about it at first. Like I played a judge on Kroll Show, but that was sitting. And I played a judge on Portlandia, but that was also sitting. And then uh, Kreisel had me play a therapist on Man Seeking Woman, also sitting. Um, because there was something about voiceover and sitting that I felt okay with, but standing was a risk. But then I stood on, on Crowther, and then for the coming season of Portlandia, I not only stand, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of craziness. So even in the last couple of years, what I'm, what I'm willing to try has increased a lot. But for 30 years, I was not willing to try at all. Well, congratulations. That's really fast funny to me because I um I I loved theater and I had always been um acting, you know, as a kid and then through high school and college and um and when people would say, Well, why didn't you ever pursue going into acting? I've never heard anyone say exactly the words out of my mouth precisely. That I just was not psychologically capable of being judged in that way at that time. And so that's really interesting to me, especially to hear it coming from a man. Um, that makes me feel less alone. So thank you for that. It was clearer oh. when it was explained by a man, right? I hadn't heard someone else say that, say that either. And, and, you know, and it sounded like a rationalization, like a rationalization. Like at the time I thought, well, this is so, I feel so exposed doing this. I can only do it if I'm doing it on my own terms. And then I spent part of my life then criticizing that 
myself for that a little bit. Like saying I'm not going to do it unless it's on my own terms is the same as saying I'm not going to do it at all. And yet then when I got into my 50s and I started to do it, it was to a large extent on my own terms. So like what I said came through. And I can't really bemoan that like I didn't act when I was in my 30s, for instance, because I think it would have created too much anxiety for me. It wouldn't have been good and it would not have been on my terms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. Absolutely. And uh, voice work is definitely an in towards that. Um, so that's, that's a wonderful thing to have been able to do and then to continue to proceed to do now. That's that's great. And it's you see a big very difference. fun. The rats thing is hilarious. No, go ahead. Yeah, it's really fun. It's really fun to do. Before we get to our final segment, I just want to know if you found a large difference between writers and actors, even comedy writers and comedy actors, or do you see a lot of common ground? I mean, more and more I see writers acting and actors writing. Um, and I've hired improvisers as writers, and I've had writers do acting. Like on Crow Show in particular, a lot of those lines were blurred. But I do feel like there's a basic actor personality type and basic writer personality type, and they're different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and would you like? Would you be able to summarize that difference, or too hard? No, it's too easy. I mean, like writers <laughs> are uh, writers are passive aggressive. Um, they don't have personal power. Um, like you'll get twelve sitcom writers in a room together, and they're all living double lives. So like, complain constantly when the boss is out of there, but then won't say it to his face. Like typically, that's what that typical group is like. You know, smart, funny, but kind of secretly bitter because they're not confronting things directly. Um, and then actors are more like narcissistic, no amount of attention is enough. They're babies. They're big babies. Yeah, right. That's why I didn't want to go into acting. I, w- I wanted to be a playwright, and then I was like, oh, wait, I, it's a collaborative process, and I have to deal with theater people? Oh, fuck, no. And that's why I stopped wanting to be a playwright. And then, you know, now I've written novels, which, you know, no actors near it. So, you know, fantastic. But, well, yeah, uh, definitely. That, like, if you, have, if you have that need to control it, you have to do, you have to do it that way. Because otherwise, I'm, I'm, exa- I'm exaggerating. Get away. I'm exaggerating. I mean, I, I, I do, I couldn't imagine collaborating with a novel, but I do like very much collaborating in other things. But I like, you know, as long as you're, there are a lot of very talented people, and so as long as you're collaborating with talented people, it's fine. I guess it would just be a drag to collaborate with someone you had no respect for. And one thing that's helped me with collaboration over the course of my career is just charting the number of times I've been wrong. So I still tend to be overly confident in my opinion. But, you know, over time, you can also be proven wrong enough that you have some humility about it, and I feel like that's made me a better collaborator, too. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So now we are on to our final segment, which isn't really a game. You can't win or lose it, which I know is going to be disappointing for you because you're owning the show. But it's called the, uh, I don't know what it's called, the, the, the Knowledge Roundup. And I kind of talk, uh, I have an excuse to talk too verbosely here because at this point, Mara goes first, and I'm killing time where she's thinking about what she's learned today, and then I will say what I've learned, and then you will say, close the show with what you have learned on this week's episode. So, Mara, what did you learn today? I have learned that this whole time, uh, my, my whole life, I have always just thought of, you know, the monkeys as kind of a throwaway thing, and I had no idea that I should have been giving far more credit to uh, to Mike Nesmith for all of the tremendous things that he, he accomplished and he did. Um, 
and and so that is that was that was actually a piece of knowledge. A lot of times I'm very flipped, but that that's something that hopefully I'll actually remember for real. Uh, but more likely, someone will bring up to me at a cocktail party, like in three months. Hey, did you know this about Mike Nesmith? And I will stand there, like just absolutely going, "Wow, I had no idea," because that, this sort of information leaves my well, head that yeah. quickly. Mike also but, actually was really playing guitar, and he actually wrote some of the Monkey songs. He was the real musician in the band. But what I learned, obviously, is that Peter uh, Peter Bogdanovich. Uh, I relearned <laughs> that Peter Bogdanovich directed Last Picture Show. For some reason, Robert Altman got in there, and I'm I'm uh, I'm that would be a good sitcom. Robert Altman got in there. Very seventies type sitcom. Yeah, each week, you know, they go into the pantry and Robert. All right. So yes, Peter Bogdanovich <laughs> directed Last Picture Show. What you learn today, John? Um, all right, I learned the format of your show. I had had no idea what it was. Um, I learned I, I learned that Wayne went to Cornell. Um, yep. I learned that Maura has had at least one conversation with uh, an ambassador about diplomacy issues. Um, I would say this has been an evolving doing for me, but I've learned that when I'm talking about my own life in this sort of way, like it's an hour of conversation covering 10 years at a time or whatever, I'm always questioning whether what I'm saying is true or not. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 all, it's all true, but, like, whether, right. it's most, whether it's the most true thing, you know? And, right. And like, I, ha- like I, haven't, I haven't done so many podcasts yet that I would say I'm not buying my own bullshit, but I could totally see that happen. I could totally see that happening if I did this 10 more times. That I would be right. checked out, that I would be, like, checked out saying things that were true five years ago. Right. You know, a novelist, uh, John Irving used to say that at, when he finished a novel, the first thing he would do is go back and write his autobiography, and then at some point he would get bored and start lying, and that's when he would <laughs> have the idea for his new novel. But, uh, it's just very good to the nature of the writer. Um, all right. Well, I think that was not just because you destroyed the games like, Maybe only Lucky and Tim have, but not not quite as well as you. A very very productive podcast. Thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's good to meet you, Wayne. And more, I've been looking forward to talking to you for a long time. I enjoy you very much. I am so glad that we were able to have you on. You were just you were wonderful. This was really really fun, and there's still I feel like so much more that we we could even talk about, but. Unfortunately, people started abandoning us after an hour, so we can't we can't push past that. So thank you everyone so much for joining us tonight and for listening and I hope everyone has a lovely Thanksgiving tomorrow or if you don't celebrate Thanksgiving, you know, do whatever it is you want to do, eat some food, uh salt by yourself, whatever it is you need to do to get through the day and uh and we'll talk to you all next week. Good night everyone. <laughs>